0: hey guys welcome back to kuza's corner i'm your host dominic kuza and thank you guys for tuning in today i hope you guys are enjoying all the episodes lately and i really having fun doing this with you guys so if you could please like subscribe share leave a comment a rating i would really appreciate it thanks yo so hope you guys had a great christmas had some nice time with some family and friends got to enjoy some good food and just uh, some good rest and relaxation. Um, but what I wanted to talk about today was, uh, the, you know, just hypertrophy, training, you know, I've, I've talked about nutrition, I've talked about supplements, so I think today's podcast would be really solid to talk about training. Uh, since most of my audience is bodybuilding, uh, physique, you know, as aspiring people uh, who want to compete or don't want to compete, just want to grow and Uh, make good progress in the gym. I figured talking about hypertrophy training today was a really good topic coming into the new years and, you know, seeing people joining the gym and trying to understand things and get things going. Um, So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, And then I wanted to touch on like RIR versus failure stuff. Um, But first, just start with like the really concrete principles that we need to understand before we get into the mumbo jumbo of RIR and failure, and you know, volume and all that. So really, today, I want to talk about the principles, and then finish up with my thoughts on RIR versus failure, because I'm not married to one dogmatic, you know, dogma of it. So right off the rip, we have to talk about what you're training for, right? We have this principle of specificity, that is probably the most important principle in sports science training theories, right? Um, It's, you know, to improve at a specific sport. So bodybuilding is the sport, we need to have the training directly support that sport. So we are trying to be a bodybuilder, we need to be training like hypertrophy. And that's how we support the growth of uh, the person in the sport. If we are a bodybuilder who does a bunch of Um, you know, hit kettlebell and powerlifting training, we are not supporting what the sport of bodybuilding is trying to reach. So that's something that I see a lot of people get lost in, especially beginners who are just trying to find their way. They want to focus on hypertrophy, gaining muscle, but they train with a mix of some powerlifting movements, really low rep targets, but a lot of weight, um, so it's just strength, um, or they're doing a lot of like hit classes or things like that, where we might be, you know, not supporting your muscle growth as much as we can, um, because we have to look at the human body in almost like an evolutionary biology standpoint. Um, you know, as humans, we were presented with a stimulus over and over again that forced us to adapt right that's how we adapt over the course of evolution that's essentially what evolution is when a species gets introduced to a stimulus it has to adapt to survive right so that stimulus keeps coming in constantly over and over and over again and the adaptations stack on each other to the point where now the adaptation can withstand the stimulus that it's being presented with and it's no longer a stimulus it's now something that the body's just presented it knows it has adapted to getting over that stimulus more efficiently each time so that's you know something that's really important to understand because when we look at hypertrophy training um, your muscles stimulated regularly because you work out regularly and we bring that stimulus consistently over time and we train for weeks and those adaptations build over those weeks those weeks of being introduced to that stimuli that stimulus is how we build adaptation now what's that adaptation that adaptation is building muscle because we are introduced to you know a weight or you know a movement that is hard initially then it gets a little easier a little easier a little easier a little easier now what's happening with that little easier we're adapting to the stimulus now it's not always muscular related um you know it could be neurological Uh, we could just be getting better at um, communicating with our muscle to help the movement move better Um, but uh, we'll just keep it kind of simple today and talk about how that is essentially the process of what the stimulus to adaptation response is when it comes to building muscle. So, um, and then, you know, to support hypertrophy, we have to look at things. One really good way to just explain this is um, if you're trying to build muscle, you're not trying to be an endurance athlete at the same time. Um, Because endurance athletes would take a massive amount of nutrients and recovery resources away from our hypertrophy kind of reservoir and you could actually burn away some of the muscle you built as well and then um, you know we when when we train for hypertrophy we train with a lot of um, faster twitch fibers that are developed and those are not very fatigue resistant so you know vice versa a lot of bodybuilding training hypertrophy training is not ideal for endurance sports or endurance performance, because bodybuilding hypertrophy increases faster twitch fiber density, which are not very fatigue resistant. And endurance performance, endurance sports, we need a lot of fatigue resistance. So that would be another way of how just an example of how you want to just train for your sport. And I think it's important to understand, because that's where a lot of people get lost. And that's where a lot of people become stagnant. And I've always noticed this in the gym, seen some people at the gym past three years literally look the same. How do you look the same? You look the same because you're trying to implement so many different training modalities training um, you know training types that you're essentially just kind of pulling from one to support the other and it's just a circle of not being able to adapt because you keep changing the stimulus you're presenting to your body. And that's something that's really important when it comes to hypertrophy training. We have to keep that stimulus consistent. We cannot keep changing it. We cannot come in and weight train one day, come back the next day, and try to do an endurance workout because we just took one stimulus one day, introduced a new stimulus the next day, and now our body doesn't know what to adapt to. Or it's going to adapt a little bit to this and a little bit to that rather than focusing on one stimulus to adapt to. So... Essentially, hypertrophy, if it's your goal, you have to make sure your training supports hypertrophy, because that's going to lead, you know, to the best, to the best growth. And I think, you know, that's, that's really, really, really um, important. Uh, And then, you know, another thing too, uh, repeating your movements increases your stimulus over time. And that is how you get the best direct adaptation. Uh, You see people like coming into the gym, changing up movements like every week, which is probably not a good idea um, because, again, you are not giving your body the same stimulus it needs over time. If we made an adaptation after a week of doing a workout, humans would look a lot different. It takes a lot of time being presented with that stimulus over and over again for our body to truly make a good, um, adaptation. And, uh, so that's essentially how, you know, we want to treat hypertrophy, um, training, you know, keeping, uh, major exercises and training structure constant for a period of time supports hypertrophy training. Um, because for a few reasons, um, as we practice and perform the exercise more, our technique improves, our neurological, our neurological communication with the muscle improves. And we actually can eventually lift heavier weight more safely, because of how much our form improves after doing something for a constant period of time. And then, uh, like I was just talking about mind to muscle connection really improves, um, which is, you know, mind to muscle is The way you can feel tension and burn in the muscle that you're targeting rather than just moving the weight, just going through motion. So um, we do know mind-to-muscle connection has been associated with uh, more muscle growth. So that is something that, um, you know, is really important to focus on. And then uh, there is a theory uh, talking about uh, different um, phases of muscular hypertrophy. It's a theory. It's not um, a concrete thing. Um, where we have a preparatory phase and a myofibular phase. And the preparatory hypertrophy is, you know, the swelling of the muscle cell, um, and then the loading of more glycogen, the expansion of connective tissue, and then the translocation of satellite cell nuclei. Um, This process is theorized to begin right after your training starts. And that is what you know, sets us up for myofibular phase, which is the creation of fully functioning um, myofibrils, which are units of muscle cells that produce force. Um, it's still unclear uh, how these things work in this theory, but we can look at this theory as something like, oh, this actually makes a good amount of sense because of, you know, how our body adapts to things, right? The preparatory phase, it, begins swelling the muscle cell so it increases the sarcoplasm uh, it loads with more glycogen so it can provide more energy storages you know and then it, it starts expanding connective proteins and now if we continue to do that repeatedly 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 we can essentially provide a stimulus that causes the adaptation for our body to make more myofibrils because the muscle kind of says like, hey, I keep getting presented with this issue, this problem, this this weight, this movement. I need more help with it. So how do I get more help? I need to make more myofibrils to produce more force to make this weight, this movement more easier and less um, fatiguing, less tiring to increase my chance for survival more. Because essentially, that's what your body looks at it as. It doesn't know you're lifting weight. It knows it's being presented with something that it needs to adapt to in order to survive against. So that's a, that's a fun way to look at it. I just said fun. If anybody thinks this is fun, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, but um, that's where switching movements too quickly can stop the preparatory phase and the myofibular phase doesn't even end up starting. So, that's another theory of why we don't want to switch movements as quickly as, you know, some, you know, some online training programs do that are for beginners and things. Um, You know, changing your training too quickly can be um, a negative thing to your potential to build um, muscle. And more on that, uh, switching exercises, rep ranges um, too frequently could interrupt, uh, you know with this progression and you know we we have a great you know there's a lot of overlap on muscle fiber stimulation right so like uh most of our quad gets stimulated by leg presses as well as hack squats um but we don't we don't encompass them all so not all of those muscle fibers are going to get um are going to get stimulated during both of those movements because because we know different exercises at different rep ranges um, likely target at least slightly different pools of muscle fibers within the same muscle and we can see that on emgs um, so you know if we do leg presses for a week or two and then switch to hack squats uh, you might have started some muscle fibers in this preparatory phase during the leg press you know, stimulus you were introducing, but then you could have switched to hack squats too quickly to not and and then the hack squat doesn't recruit some of these muscle fibers, the same way the leg press was even though we both look at them as, you know, really similar quad movements. So that is something that, you know, still theorized, but makes a lot of sense from scientific standpoint. Uh, So Essentially, we just want to keep, you know, training consistent over time, which I think is, you know, a really good, a really good thing to, you know, be focused on. And a lot of trainers can take a lot out of this. Like, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you know, making, you know, just looking and making sure your programming is, is specific to the client and their goals, you know, because I see that a lot with personal trainers is they're doing different stuff every session. Well, where's the stimulus? Where's the, where's a repetitive stimulus coming from? You know, a, a, uh, a preacher curl and, um, you know, let's look at like a high cable curl are could, you know, are going to recruit different muscle fiber groups, even though it's a bicep movement, you know, you might get more tension in one area of your bicep, in one movement versus the other so those are reasons why we're, you know even sometimes i believe accessory stuff it's important to not change as often as some people do but let's encompass all that and move on to um like training stimulators of hypertrophy like um what how are we going to stimulate hypertrophy which is muscle growth right so we know um there's quite a few stimulators, uh, but really the few I want to focus on are tension, um, volume, relative effort, range of motion, uh, metabolite accumulation, cell swelling, mind and muscle connection, uh, moment, movement veloci- velocity, and muscle damage. Um, this I got from um, one of the best books I've probably read uh, was Scientific Principles of Hypertrophy by Dr. Micah Um and the Renaissance periodization crew, Jared Feather, as well on this. Um, But this was a really good chapter in the book where it kind of, you know, summarized a lot of things that go into the scientific um, portions of hypertrophy. So right off the bat, we know tension is uh, the force produced in a muscle, and we have tension uh, receptors which um, detect and measure the force passing through uh, the muscle. So these uh, receptors uh, initiate a cascade that can activate muscle growth. Uh, So the more tension detected, the more muscle growth is stimulated across large ranges of force. So tension receptors on muscle cells stimulate a cascade to start muscle protein synthesis, or muscle growth. So we know there's a ton of um, evidence for tension because we can look at astronauts in space where tension is lower and how they atrophy um, or people who are confined to beds in in hospital settings where we see um, muscle loss and atrophy of muscle because tension is not there. Uh, so with that, we know different uh, force levels are managed by different types of motor units. And a motor unit is a group of muscle cells And the motor neuron is what stimulates the contraction. So small motor units have uh, fewer motor neurons. Smaller muscle cells uh, tend to be slower twitch and therefore weaker, but they are more fatigue resistant. And then larger motor units, larger muscle cells um, tend to be called faster twitch, but they can be uh, fatigued quickly. Uh, uh, You know, just to summarize, essentially the heavier the load that we are presented with um, the more motor unit recruitment we can cause so that's uh that's important because if we curl a really light object you will only activate a small fraction of motor units Um, and a lot of those would end up being you know smaller motor units that are slow twitch fibers so um we could essentially stimulate some growth, but the magnitude of that is controlled by the heavier the load, the more tension, thus the more motor unit recruitment. So the increase in force production across these motor units is what can, you know, kind of exp- uh, kind of increase overall muscle growth. Uh, tension is the most important thing, but fatigue accumulation can hinder the proper volume. So if the load is way too heavy, even though it caused a lot of tension, um, it creates a lot of fatigue and that's what prevents sufficient volume. And that is where we're gonna move into next because one thing that I think is important when it comes to talking about volume is very low volume and high loads produce very little hypertrophy even in beginner lifters who see the most growth. Um, And once you get into the intermediate advanced lifter, you won't see really any growth from very heavy loads and very low volume. Um, Because uh, a a large amount of tension, the muscles exposure to the tension is limited by the, the number of reps because it's such a heavy weight and so fatiguing. So that will bring us into um, the topic of volume now and how we can look at volume as a way to maximize growth is we need the muscle to have a long duration um, to this stress of tension uh, more than obviously one repetition can provide um, because a lot of it, So, I think this is where people get a little confused with the time under tension stuff. Um, You know, I guess we could say volume is essentially time under tension. So, extending the duration of the tension on the muscle um, can provide more uh, muscle growth because the tension is being extended. Um, Now, effective range of tension is where we want to be. Uh, When we are looking at like how many reps to do. Uh, And then that's where I think the confusion gets a bit more into because of um, like the word volume, Um, which, you know, ideally the range of tension we want to be in is enough to allow the tension to promote the best growth. Um, And that's where obviously volume will make the bigger difference dependent on load, that we are, you know, essentially using for the movement. Um, Because we know that uh, mechanoreceptors uh, send signals proportionally to the load. It's the duration of this single signal output is what allows us to determine how well that message was received. And that's how much muscle growth can occur. So that's why we want... um, you know the time producing the tension so the volume the, the time spent in the tension is essentially what's going to push the signaling of these mechanoreceptors thus how much muscle growth we can get uh, and we can get more growth by increasing the tension increasing the load um, increasing the duration of tension which is the volume so repetitions um, or a combination of the both we can increase you know reps and Uh, volume a little bit too and so you know to cause more muscle growth we need to lift heavier do more total reps or sets to a a certain point um, or some combination of the two and that's where you get like a lot of the talk about progressive overload right progressive overload is making you know the stimulus um harder each time which could be you know adding reps adding weight adding sets or a combination of the two because we have to provide you know that new stimulus to cause a new adaptation because every time we train that stimulus threshold to cause adaptation moves so we have to be able to get back up there to push that up there even more to cause more adaptation and uh, another topic too we could talk about when it comes to volume is how um, different fiber types uh, respond different to uh, uh, different levels of Um, tension and different like rep amounts Um, there's some pretty good research that shows how slow twitch fibers are because they're more fatigue resistant we can uh, use lighter loads but provide more time in the tension so higher reps for example Um, and then faster twitch fibers are less fatigue resistant so they can handle heavier loads um, but need less time um, in tension but Of course, it's it's the balance between those two, we have to make sure that load and time under tension uh, still are relative, we have to make sure we are keeping that consistent, and they can't be really heavily influenced by one side or the other. It's a good combination between the two that provide that good balance between um, these two um, drivers of hypertrophy, essentially. Uh, and the next uh, that I want to talk about was relative effort, which uh, essentially is how close to failure you are on a lift or how difficult the lift is for you um, to your current capacity. So what you are currently able to do, how close are you to failure on these lifts and how difficult are they for you? Um, you know, this is actually what is responsible for uh a large range of tension and volumes, uh, values that can be effective for hypertrophy. Um, because, you know, if we get really close to muscular failure, nearly all of the motor units are activated and producing good force for the movement. Now we do know that a motor unit can be stimulated to grow, um, either because of the amount of force required by the whole muscle is really large or the volume is so great that muscle fibers must take over because the first group of muscle fibers fatigued. Um, So that's uh, something that I wanted to just point out and make sure that we understand that. It could be that these motor units are getting recruited because of the amount of force needed to move the load, or they are getting fatigued because the volume is high enough to... Uh, cause other motor units to be recruited and then next is range of motion now we know that different motor units activate during different portions along a range of motion so we know some motor units are activated the whole time through Um, some motor units are more activated in the stretched position the contracted position and then points um, between those Uh, so That's something to this is why we talk about range of motion being so important because some muscle and motor, some motor units are not recruited um, or stimulated because we are not going through uh, the entire range of motion. We know that some range, some motor units are heavily stimulated in the lengthened versus the contracted or the shortened. Um, So that's important to make sure we keep full range of motion so that we can stimulate all these motor units um, because, you know, some of them activate at certain points of a movement. And then tension uh, while stretching a muscle, so the eccentric negative, essentially, um, does, uh, it can actually be independent growth stimulator of itself. Now, we know that because we can stimulate growth via tension um, under the stretch specifically so the stretch under tension um, can provide a kind of different type of hypertrophy that tension um, itself creates which can add muscle in the lengthened position of the muscle Um, and then concentric or eccentric training uh, grow roughly equivalent amounts of muscle uh, but seem to stimulate the growth via different pathways. So concentric, eccentric, grow equal muscle, but differently. We have stretched under tension, we have shortened under tension. Uh, So that's where, you know, we want to make sure we are including all of these things, but include them specifically for how you're training that day. If you're training a movement that is specifically very focused on the lengthened position, you're not going to put a lot of emphasis on the shortened position you're going to, you want to put more emphasis on the lengthened position the the eccentric the negative portion of the movement because you are training that portion very heavily in that movement um, to focus on the shortened position which you might not even be getting full range of uh, would not be a smart thing and could actually cause probably more fatigue than actual stimulus it could eat up reps that you are missing because you're trying to force the muscle to do something Uh, and then with this concept of range of motion and how certain muscle motor units activate at certain points uh it's cool because this is where partials can actually come in handy where we can stimulate uh, regions of muscle more favorably now partials um you can see have an effect on, like, that group of motor units in that partial range of motion that we want to emphasize on. So, uh, that's really the, the points of um, hypertrophy, uh, hypertrophy driving I wanted to talk about. Um, I talk, talked about mind and muscle earlier um, because it's important to feel the tension, the volume, and the fatigue that comes from, you know, feeling the burn, essentially. Uh, and then just the last portion that I think is a good one to touch on before we get on to the RIR and failure stuff um, is muscle damage, right? So essentially, recovery and adaptation compete with each other when it comes to um, our resources. So we only have so many resources available to either recover from or adapt to. So we have to use these resources in order to make an adaption and also recover the muscle so that's where we have to be careful because if training is too damaging that means recovery is going to consume majority of our resources and very little adaptation which is muscle growth could occur Um, your muscle damage cannot surpass your recovery capacity otherwise all your resources will be used up for recovery specifically and allow little to no resources for adaptation and muscle growth. Now, that's where the talk of RIR and failure training can kind of start. Um, Because essentially, with, you know, RIR training, uh, people, you know, know it as repetitions, you know, repetitions in reserve, right? So you are training to a point where you feel like there could be two, three, four reps until you are going to be, um, you know, physically unable to do the movement because you've reached failure. And then with training to failure, we get the um, concept of just doing your set until, you know, you are, you are done, right? You just can't move the weight anymore, uh, which we know can cause a lot of Damage. Uh, so, with that being said, I just wanted to talk about you know my thoughts on RIR and failure training. You know, essentially, what is RIR? Where could it be beneficial? Um, and then, where does failure training, you know, really come into target? And you know, where can that, you know, help? Because I think I think it it can still be, you know, used and doesn't have to be you know completely thrown under the rug. um, Because I think in order to understand RIR, you kind of have to experience failure training in order to be able to gauge how close you are to failure, right? You know, um, so throwing a beginner training person into this complex system of RIR, you know, might not be the best idea for some people because they, you know, haven't trained in five years, never really trained consistently. And just don't understand, you know, their body that well yet. So telling them to stop for four shy of failure, you know, might be a point where, hey, like, they could be, you know, eight away from failure, really. So I think, um, I think that's where we can, you know, apply, hey, why don't you just train until you have mechanical failure, like your form breaks, that's when you stop. Um, You know, if you start you know cupping your shoulders forward on a bench press or something you know that's it you're done you're not working on your chest anymore at that point Um, just stop the rep there so you know you are essentially failing at mechanical uh, movement at that point you know it's not to the point where you have no energy left you simply cannot lift something up so I think you know that is uh, that is definitely something that we can talk about today as well Now, when it comes to uh, applying RIR, I think, you know, where it can be beneficial is with, you know, someone who understands what failure training was. Maybe somebody that has a past where they used to train all out completely to failure and they want to give RIR a try. And I think this is where it could be used to help that person, you know, understand how to control their fatigue and their fatigue accumulation Um, Because that's where I think RIR becomes um, very um, useful at is controlling that fatigue accumulation. So where you are getting more consistent stimulative sessions rather than, you know, completely, you know, redlining every time you go into the gym and train. And potentially maybe you're causing too much damage and, you know, your recovery resources aren't to the point where you know, you're able to both provide for recovery and, you know, what we need for adaptation. So I think that is, you know, super important to look at because, you know, there's some pretty good studies that show failure, a failure rep, and a one RIR rep are essentially the same in terms of how much muscle stimulus they cause. And the fatigue, though, is different between the two the complete failure fatigue is higher than the one rir fatigue but for less you know for essentially the same stimulus why fatigue yourself even more is kind of my question but um i can see where rir does get really confusing um, because a lot of people do stop probably too shy of where they're supposed to you bring an outside intervention in, right, the person's training, they call a set one RIR. They say they might not have gotten one more rep. If you bring a trainer, a coach, a friend to push them a little bit, they might get three, four, five more reps. There's studies that show that. Um, So gauging the RIR is something that, you know, is difficult to do. And I think that's why, um, when it comes to training to failure, you know training to one rir even um, because most people who do train to failure train to one rir in my opinion i see people posting videos all the time and they have in their video i took this set to failure and the velocity at their lift on their last rep showed clearly they weren't even close to failure you know maybe mentally they felt they were getting close to failure some you know their muscle was burning or whatever but Um, they weren't close to true failure, uh, because true failure would be not being able to move that, that motion, right. Or maybe they consider failure, mechanical failure, which I think I would probably consider more of what failure should be when it comes to training to failure, because let's say we're doing a movement like a squat and we're taking it to, or a hack squat, let's say we're taking it to failure. If we're getting close to the point where that last rep, all of a sudden, I'm pressing up with my toes and my back's coming off of the pad just to force that last rep, I probably shifted too much tension where it shouldn't have gone. And that last rep probably didn't cause much stimulus on what I wanted it to cause stimulus for. And I ended up giving myself more fatigue than actual stimulus. So, in my opinion, mechanical failure is a good way to judge overall failure. Otherwise, you're sacrificing fatigue for something that ends up not being very stimulative. Um, So, that's kind of like where I stand between the two. I like RIR personally because of the ability to control my fatigue over time. Now, my two, three RIRs, when I've trained with some people recently, they're kind of like you considered that a three RIR, and I say, yeah, because if I if I took my time, focused more, I could have got three more reps. Or if you yelled at me, I probably could have got three more reps. That's how I gauge my R my RIR. Because on video, my three RIR might look like somebody's one rep shy of failure, um, but essentially, I know I can push harder, so I know I'm better at gauging my RIR. Um, And, you know, when I have conversations with people who understand, you know, the functionality of training and everything and the science behind training, we have really good conversations because, one, we're open-minded and I'm not consistently fighting with people about, no, this is the only way to train because I, I don't believe in stuff like that. I'm not very not attached to the dogma of what RIR training is. I'm willing to try other things. I have tons of clients that can't stand it and hey, I program for them not to do it. So, um, you know, that's something that I'm willing to do for my clients because I think that's how you essentially help your client the most, uh, you know. And then when I talk to people, when I train clients with failure, I just tell them one shy of mechanical failure. So the rep before your form starts to really go, that's where I want you to stop, because that's where we're not going to get much more out of it. You could force the you know a rep or two in, in broken form, but you know tension just shifted. You know now we're compensating with other groups of muscles that we probably don't want to be using, and that's where we want to cut that. You know we don't want to deal with that at that point. But um, you know with these same people that I have these talks with. Um, We always come to the agreement of the principles of hypertrophy. So, you know, talking about specificity, progressive overload, all those things on how those always come first. And essentially just creating that new stimulus every time they come in the gym is how they're going to adapt, whether that's through RIR, failure, adding reps, adding sets, adding load. That's how, you know, that's one thing we always agree on. And I think at that point, you know, you can kind of just say, okay, well, if they like this, then they're probably going to succeed better because they enjoy their training better, you know? And I think that's where, uh, I have good conversations, I think it's a little ignorant to say like, you know, Oh, you, you leave reps in the tank. You don't train hard. Well, I beg to differ. Like, you know, I've put on 60 pounds and, and I put on 60 pounds in five months. Oh no, not five, I put on 60 pounds in eight months, you know? Um, and I'm not fat. So I think my training is working. Um, You know, and I I like to tease people with it too, but I really don't care. Um, It doesn't, I don't lose sleep over it because, you know, it works for me. It works for some of my clients. uh, And then I have clients that don't prefer it and I don't do it. So, you know, I always tell them the most important things are, you know, controlling weight with good tempo, um, range of motion, and just making each workout harder than the last to provide that new adaptation um and i think that is that is the the takeaway from you know not arguing about rir versus failure it's what is how's all the other stuff looking how are all the concrete the the foundation of what your hypertrophy training looks like how does that look before you get into you know are you training with rir rpe um, are you a DC volume? You know, how, you know, before you get into all that, I think it's more important to, um, you know, just make sure your foundation of stuff is really good. You know, making sure your recovery at your recovery capacity is where it should be so that you're not just wasting all your resources on recovery so that you're able to come and have productive, you know, training sessions the next day or the day after that. Um, so I think that's where you know, you can see, you know, a lot of good stuff where, um, from, you know, just focusing on the principles of hypertrophy first, before getting into this whole repetitions and reserve and, um, you know, training to failure. Um, but that's it for today. I'll keep it under an hour. I think, uh, I think it was a good talk I think I talked about a lot of good, um, you know, basic principles of hypertrophy training that you could take away and make sure that, you know, your coach is programming for you, your trainer is doing for you. Um, and then, you know, just finishing up talking about the RIR failure stuff and just, you know, addressing what, you know, needs to be talked about because I think it's kind of pointless to fight about it or do anything about it because most importantly, are you causing stimulus? Are you causing adaptation? Are you recovering well? Yes, yes, yes. Well, you're going to grow. So uh, with that, I hope you guys all have a great new year. And I will catch you guys on the next one. Thanks for sharing, liking, subscribing. You guys are doing awesome with that. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to keep doing these. If you guys have any topics you want me to talk about, um, just let me know. But thank you, everybody, and happy new year.